Hello, hello, and welcome back to Last Minute Politics. It is the day after Easter when I'm recording this, and we're doing like a back-to-back one because I don't want to miss my schedule, and I'm going to be in Vegas, but not for fun <clears throat> next week. It's always great being able to tell people, yeah, I'm going to Vegas next week, but once you live within a few hours of Vegas, it's just like, yeah, I'm going over to the next city so I can work. <laughs> it becomes far less exciting. Lorcan, say hello again. It's good to have you back. Hello, thanks for having me back. And I mean, it makes sense that you're close to Vegas because you live in a desert hellhole from <laughs> what some people have described, of course. But um, I'm not one to judge in that department. I think the distance from my city to Las Vegas is probably greater than the distance if you were to cross the entire island of Ireland. <laughs> I suppose, yeah, but I just... <laughs> puts it into perspective doesn't it there's far less to look at while you're doing it. actually i can't even say that because about like two-thirds of the way through your drive you you uh, you drive near the hoover dam which you can't quite see from your car which sucks uh, actually it's probably done on purpose like, they put up these big cement walls probably so people don't just like stare 90 degrees to the right as they're driving across a bridge <laughs> and they keep yeah. their eyes forward <laughs> I cooked corned beef and cabbage today. I cooked. I am cooking. I put them all in a pot and I put it, set it to eight hours. That's all of the cooking that I have done. Uh, I got that corned beef because it was on extreme discount after St. Patrick's Day. That was a few weeks ago at this point. But I, I only bring this up. That's because it was infested with pathogens. It's, yeah, that or... is. Well, it's American food, so it is so like bleached, sanitized, and full of antibiotics that <laughs> nothing could possibly survive. <laughs> Yeah, including the people who eat them. <laughs> we do have a 100% mortality rate over a long enough <laughs> data collection period. But, Lorcan, is that a thing that is actually eaten in Ireland? And if so, like, commonly? Is it like a, a bit? Is, is it a special occasion thing? You mean the dish that you're making? Yeah. Yes. Corn, beef, cabbage, potato, carrot, all like kind of in a stew that you cook all day. Um... In a stew, yes, but I wouldn't say it's as common as the way you do it yourself. Um, keep in mind, my family grew up on the poor end of Belfast, so mostly we would have just had champ, which is basically... Um, Please tell me. Uh, <laughs> if somebody invites you in for a bile of champ, it's uh, kind of a compliment, really. Essentially, <laughs> it's a um, it's mashed potatoes, but with uh, spring onions, milk, and butter, and that's it. <laughs> See, I would just say no onion, please, and just eat the, <laughs> eat the potato. <laughs> I just don't like onions very much. But I, if I was forced to subsist on only potato, I would probably make it at least at least a, a year before I was complaining. Hi. Sometimes, if you want a, a a good poor people tip from my honestly childhood, I was definitely an adult doing this. You get the bag of potatoes and you fucking like wash it off a bit, get the dirt off of it, but then poke it with a fork, put it in the microwave. <laughs> and then once your potato is nice and microwaved, you just pick it up like one giant French fry and dunk it in ketchup and just eat it. Just do that. Live like a terrible troll person. <laughs> It'll cost you, you know, 10 cents. <laughs> I mean, historically, we've all been depicted as terrible troll people, essentially, <laughs> who live in, like, hills. So, I mean, I suppose not much has changed in some 
departments. So I guess it's relevant <laughs> advice. All right, let me hit you with my uh, my a second silly opening. When I was at uh, I was at a convention called Motor City Furcon in Detroit, Michigan, uh, a few weeks ago. And when we were there, we were outside, and one of you know you're doing the thing where it's like, all right, I'll see you later, goodbye. We're all doing like our mildly intoxicated goodbyes at the end of the night, and the guy has to get across the street. And I say across the street, it's like through the <laughs> MCFC's uh, hotel is on a golf course. Which makes it sound fancier than it is. It is not any fancy area. To illustrate, last year, somebody had all of their tires stolen and their car was put on blocks. And I thought that was like a joke about literally putting a car on blocks. But it was it was put on blocks. And this, these were stock rims also. This was not like, oh, they had very nice rims and they were stolen. These are like the rims that a Toyota whatever like minivan came with. Stole them. Well, we don't, we don't, we don't steal people's tires here. What we have a tendency to do, depending on where you go in Belfast, would be, well, we break people's car windows, we'd hotwire the cars, and then we would take them to an empty lot and just do donuts for like an hour, and then set the car on fire. <laughs> um, Come on, it's very calm. It, well, maybe not as common as I'm making it out to be, but um, it does happen now and again. So. Um, Come on, you got see. This is an anarchism versus socialism thing. You need to, you to seize the means and reappropriate them, not destroy them. <laughs> that car has value yeah. as a means of production. But we're outside That's watching. We're watching this guy. Uh, he's calling a, ca- a cab. I say calling a cab. It's an Uber because this is America, and you know there's no actual cabs. It's just Uber and Lyft, which are now more expensive than what cabs used. Anyway. Somebody uh, yes, rolls yeah, up. It just went, it just, it, they're like an extinct species. Now, I've noticed when I went to the States last, um, <laughs> Uber really did do the cab driver favor. It just, it just wiped them all out. It's kind of like yeah. a meteor. That's like where we're all, that, that's where we're, where American labor is headed. And it's, there's, uh, you know, Marxist minded people who are trying to analyze, like, are you a proletarian, like capital P, like with the scientific definition of what proletarian means, if you work, uh, if you're a service worker, or even that, even like lower than that, not even a service worker hired by a company, but uh, a gig work <laughs> service work. Like if you're, they're trying to make everything into Uber. Uh, we have like, what is it? Um, OnlyFans is porn Uber. Uh, if you're at oh, like porn Uber, yeah, it's what it is. It's just like for it's pay per service. Some people make zero money. Some people make all their money. Uh, everything is becoming Uberized. Heck, uh, my freaking one. I'm trying to. I don't know. I'm trying to like protect their identity. My fucking partner's job. He used to work security at a marijuana uh, store, and they just eliminated that position entirely because they're subcontracting it out to a security Uber. Not the cops even. This is just like these aren't even people with guns. They just stand and you know they stand there. If somebody causes trouble, they go over and say, "Hey, please stop." And if they get out of control, they just call the actual police. There's an Uber for that. I don't think it'll be too long before cashiers are Ubers. You got to sign up for cash cashier, but spelled with the R, like and remove some of the vowels. Cashier. And then you'll sign up for a shift and they'll send you to Walmart and you'll work for two hours. And then they'll send you to Kroger and you'll work for four hours and they'll send you to fucking, or I'll do one for you. They'll send you to Tesco and you'll work for a few hours. All <laughs> uh, right. Yes, of course. Because every, every store over here is Tesco. Well, that's your big chain. <laughs> Wait, what's your Not Walmart? Isn't it, isn't it like Adzi or something? It's like Walmart, but. Adzi. No. Very, very, very close. Asda. Asda. There it is. Asda sounds um, like. Although, um, although, um. 
well, one of the original pharmacies from the, from the UK is, uh, well, it's known as Boots, but it's actually owned by an American company, um, Walgreens. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Because you can't, can't keep your fucking little hands out of everything. Look, so, um, the, in, the the venture capitalists must find, continually expand markets. Or <laughs> I suppose that's just true. Sorry, Europe. You're a market that's getting expanded. And fucking France, of all people, is saying, stop it. You've done too much. <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. So we're standing outside, and this guy calls a cab, which is really a lift. And they pull up. And he asks the lady, hey, are you my, are you my lift? Because he was like trying to do it on his phone, but he's also drunk, and he may or may not have actually successfully, and they're all like, oh, 20 minutes away, 30 minutes away. Somebody pulls up who is, has all the stickers and stuff, like I am a, a driver of Lyft and Uber, because that's what everyone does now. You just do both, <laughs> have both apps open and take whichever one gives you more money. They pull up, and he, she's just like, who, huh? Like, you can tell English is not her first language. And she's checking, looking at her phone, like, is that you? And he's like, no, it's not me. And then someone walks out of the hotel, and they go, that's me. <laughs> and the guy <laughs> does not acknowledge this person at all and goes, all right, so I'm trying to go across the street. And he pulls out a $20, a $20 bill in cash and goes, I'm going to give you this if you drive me over there. How much do they usually give you? <laughs> like, is this okay? And she just looks at him, takes like two seconds, goes, yeah, okay. <laughs> and then the guy's like, that's my <laughs> <laughs> so they both get in the cab <laughs> I just, i'm like did we just witness like the gold medal professional highest level of stealing someone's cab <laughs> yeah basically <laughs> and i mean honestly i feel kind of good for the lady because she got an, she probably got an extra 19 dollars and 20 cents uh by taking that cash <laughs> and driving him literally across the street you just have to drive through the golf course it ends up being like two miles if you actually walk it so we didn't want to do that and ow god it was beautiful we all stood there they drove away and we all were just in shock looking at each other like wow that happened what was their conversation like in the back of this cab <laughs> he says you know this is my cab and they're like yeah i know but i <laughs> I gave him twenty dollars. So. Eh, probably just awkward smiles. <laughs> you know? yeah. They probably said nothing. <laughs> I want to get in the cab with them just to like film, be like, "All right, what's your reaction?" <laughs> For an interesting YouTube video, I guess. Stealing cabs. The sh uh, we, yeah, we can make a whole market out of that. We'll make a whole genre of that's the new prank channel. It's the cab stealing channel, and you try not to get or shot. Unboxing videos, another one, another very popular. The pastime, as some people call it. <laughs> okay, Lorcan, I have a couple of topics I'm going to slap through because there's not really much to say about them. And then I want to get to, uh, to the meat of our discussion. So, first thing I'm talking about, uh, just because it's topical here, uh, we, we, have, uh, we have Medicare and Medicaid. Medicare is for old people. It's the public, like, the public, Americans don't have, uh, like, public health insurance. We do, kind of, but only for people who are retired. Or Medicaid is for people who are poor, like me. I qualify for Medicaid because I make less than, what is it, 120% of the poverty line. And in my state, that's $25,000 a year. And I make like 20, 20, I make like $20,000 a year. So I qualify. I get my free health care. And it, they've been sending me letters to renew it and not renew it. And eh, I keep calling like, no, you don't have to renew till next year. And I'm like, are you sure? They keep sending me letters. But the reason that's happening is uh, during COVID, Biden... Uh, 
kind of like, and I say Biden, it's like the federal government. I know that like the president himself does not like personally do everything themselves, but for simplicity's sake, I'm just going to keep saying Biden. Biden made it where if you're getting COVID care, you're, he just kind of like auto qualified a shit ton of people for Medicare. The reason you don't get on Medicare usually, oh, I'm saying this wrong, Medi- Medicaid, sorry, the poor people one. The reason you don't get on Medicaid usually is the, um, means testing the paperwork they'll deny you over bullet like it's like it's like what was it simon he, he will deny you three times and then <laughs> then you can get your medicare you have to fight through the paperwork it's not even because you don't qualify more people qualify than even come close to getting it but the you have to jump over the hurdles that's like the test you you can have health care if you get to the end of this obstacle course and the obstacle course is sitting on hold on the phone for hours and hours but that is now ending Biden is now taking away our Medicaid because, you know, it's it's fine now. <laughs> Everyone's healthy and no one needs medical care anymore. This is the motherfucker who promised us a, there's like, well, I'm not going to do Medicare for all, but I'm going to do a public option. And the closest thing to a public option we have is Medicaid. And you can even kind of backdoor this shit and be like, you know what? We're just doing Medicaid for everybody. Oh, yeah. Bernie Sanders. Remember that shit? <laughs> <laughs> and I, yeah. I'm only bringing this up to point out that not only is he not giving us a public option, the most progressive president in history, he's doing the a move that people, if it was Trump, people would be losing their fucking minds. But it's Biden, so nobody cares. And he's kicking tens of millions of people off of their only health insurance that they only qualify for because they are poor because COVID is, quote, over, whatever, and uh, they, haven't, they're, they aren't going to be able to f- f- uh, figure the paperwork out. Half these people don't have an address. They don't have a phone. And yeah, go ahead, figure out the bureaucracy to keep your health care. Do you, do you have any comments? Why, why even <laughs> implement it to begin with? Is it just going to throw it away? That's what we do all the time. We had a child care tax credit for almost a year where everybody who had a kid just got like a $500 check just every month. And I'm like, that's that's something. <laughs> it's like It's like they make the effort to appear that they give a shit about working people, but then... They just take the mask off again and just say, uh, it was all a facade, man. I think it's just to, to fill out a pamphlet. So when, like when the election comes around, they can just put some more bullet points. Like they'll put the, how the program started as a bullet point, And then I'll come around with my pamphlet of how the program ended <laughs> as bullet points. Oh, they, well, it, it's like, they don't mention that part in the future campaigns. I actually heard that he's uh, running again. I think. Uh, so weird. Sh- there's weird leaks coming out, and the people who mostly know what they're talking about are saying that these leaks may be an attempt by the Democratic Party establishment to try and convince Joe through threats uh, to not run. But we'll see what happens because no one ever doesn't run. Lorcan here, they always run. <laughs> yeah, I've, no- I've noticed that. And, and, and at the same time, I uh, I don't know if I mentioned in the last episode, but um. Because you people can't contain him or keep him in whatever <laughs> hole he crawls out of, he's actually coming over to one of my universities to um, talk about the Good Friday Agreement, I believe. Yo, you're part of the if... imperialism goodbye tour, the farewell tour of imperialism, where Kamala Harris is in Africa saying, hey, everybody, you should just uh, ignore all your people and continue your fucked up deals with us that only benefit, like, the six rulers in your country, and even those guys are sick of it. <laughs> yeah, we're getting booed out of Africa. I hope they get booed out of Ireland. I hope they get protested. I'm sure they will. Uh, they won't get on the oh, news well, for it. I but. mean, the security. I mean, sure, the, the campus um, from my university that he's going to be heading to was it has been closed off for the past while <laughs> because they're afraid that someone's going to fucking do something. 
I don't want Biden to be killed because I don't want any human to just be like, like assassinating the president of the U.S. isn't really an answer, even if you did it. <laughs> but <laughs> no, but it'd be pretty funny. <laughs> I mean, I, as an American, I cannot endorse. The <laughs> don't kill the president, everybody. You heard it here first. Pepper Coyote says, "Don't kill the United States president." Um. Anyway, <laughs> Lorkin. I'm sure, Ronald Reagan would really appreciate your. Uh... Endorsement. Hey, they tried to kill, <laughs> to kill Ronald I Reagan. Know. I know. <laughs> Didn't work. <laughs> Did anyone try to kill Thatcher? Was there an assassination attempt? On oh, yes. Um, there was. Um, <laughs> the Brighton Hotel bombings. The IRA tried to um, <laughs> blow <her> up. <laughs> wow. Um, Relevant. Uh, we didn't succeed, though. It was um, we killed one of our uh, cabinet ministers, though. Don't say we. You're, implicating, you're implicating yourself. You're going to get arrested for anti-Republican activities or whatever. <laughs> Or pro Republican. I remember one of the commanders said, I think, on a tele in a telephone call to Thatcher, it was, um, "We only need to get lucky once. We need to get lucky multiple times." <laughs> this sounds like Castro, like the CIA talk about Castro. <laughs> yeah, yes. We we only need to get lucky once. Uh, I bring that up because the the CIA tried to kill Castro like well, like a hundred and fifty different plans, and nope, they they can yeah, never they do did, it. Yeah, they did, and it's uh, kind of embarrassing that every single one of them didn't work. <laughs> Seriously. It sounds like the IRA attempt on Thatcher was more effective than any of the CIA attempts on Castro. Yeah, I mean, it basically was. There was just a, a few little dents in the plan, but that was it. Yeah. I mean, it's not the only thing we did. We also, uh, uh, and, and I think it was in 89, we launched a mortar shell at Downing Street. <laughs> this is like... I think, I think it was, yeah, it was. It was 89, I'm pretty sure. Um, we launched a, well, improvised mortars were very common. So it's like Palestine style. Yeah, we uh, fired one at 10 Downing Street, although luckily for 10 Downing Street, um, I think it was John Major as the president, as the, sorry, Prime Minister at the time. Um, he was also a dick. Um, <laughs> they were lucky because he was in the war cabinet. This was due to the Gulf War. And um, yeah, the, the, the building was hit, but because the building has a explosive proof glass, because it turns out they were, anticipating yeah. getting shot at now and again, I mean. as it turns out. Yeah. And then another one went and exploded in a nearby park, which thankfully nobody was there, but it was kind of, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that a bunch of innocents weren't killed <laughs> in the attempt. Heck, that's also, that's part of the reason that, uh, what, what is it, We uh, as communists, we would refer to it as adventurism. The idea of, like, we're going to do a big, like, violence move on somebody. Like, that is very, very rarely, basically never endorsed by Marxist, Leninist, communist parties. Because it just doesn't, like, even if you kill them, cool, now what? And if you don't, you might fuck up and kill innocent people. Or they'll just claim you did and lie about it and call you horrible terrorists forever. So you, well, that's what I mean, and I think. I think a lot of the late IRA mistakes would lead into that realm of adventurism, unfortunately. This is uh, actually always... this is a good point to like start getting into it. Like uh, last week, we talked about a bunch of good fine details, especially things that are uh, relevant to right now's situation. But most of my audience is North American, if not just straight up United States. And we have kind of like a vague idea of Ireland and Britain fight because they one took each other over a, a, a billion years ago. And I don't know, also potato famine. <laughs> like the, the details don't really exist yeah. for us. So like, 
if you want to give us some extremely basic backstory, we're talking about the IRA. Like, was that a was the IRA a communist party? Was it like just random rebel group? Is it well, you know, not not necessarily. No, although one of the most famous um, leaders of the Republican movement, a fellow known as James Connolly, was a very dedicated socialist um, at the time. And, and, and uh, you know, uh, if you're looking for an interesting book by him, I would recommend uh, Labour in Irish History, which is quite an interesting overview of the the situation in Ireland at the time, as well as his principles of a united Irish socialist republic, which was... This is like 1910, you're talking turn of the century. Yes, uh, basically, by the time of the Easter Rising, he was one of the leaders of 16, who were um, basically shot dead after the... Uh, um, rebellion failed essentially but the ira was kind of based off of the war of independence which came afterwards if you will um but but the foundations were kind of laid during the easter rising in that sense but when it comes to kind of the history of britain and ireland there's kind of a it's kind of a twofold thing you've got an initial period of colonization and then you've got an initial period of plantation which are kind of two different things so i'll kind of try and overview them as quickly as i can the the kind of first entrance of England into Ireland came in the form of the Normans. So this was after William the Conqueror, essentially, in 1066, Stamford Bridge, that whole thing. The Normans initially landed in Ireland in 1169, and they conquered much of the territory and created what was known as the Lordship of Ireland. But the problem is the actual control wasn't really finalized. They just kind of went about, pillaged a few villages and just left it there. But 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 they but they eventually settled in an area which is which makes up modern Dublin essentially or County Meath, which was known as the English Pale. The rest of the island though remained very feudal and tribal for a very long time, and it was still controlled by mostly lords and chieftains. And this allowed Gaelic culture to, for a long time, remain legal and still flourish despite an initial English presence on the island. The English Pale, on the other hand, consisted of a very weak central government. Um, especially during the time of the War of the Roses, and it, and, and, but it was the only place that really had English laws that were solidified, and it was also the only areas where Gaelic culture was technically outlawed. Um, the English government themselves, they often delegated the governance of Ireland to various Hiberno-Norman dynasties, which would have been Basically, Normans who wanted to sleep with Irish people is the best way I would describe it. Um, <laughs> and most, the most powerful of them at the time was a, a group of people known as the Fitzgeralds of County Kildare. But they were only they were only around for the time to actually just protect the Pale and reduce the costs of actually managing the initial colonial efforts. But again, English law wasn't really applied anywhere else. It was only within the Pale. So they only hired people to protect the, the poor English settlers in the Pale. <laughs> from the savage Gaelic um, tribes and like of the rest of the country. What century uh, are we talking about at this point? Because you started with 1100. Oh yeah, so we're, we're, we're talking kind of the 12th uh, century here. So this is very, very early. The War of the Roses, however, that kind of applies to... So we're still nearly the, a thousand um, years ago you're talking about history. Yeah, so, you know, but so people's, when people say that, it's kind of correct, but it's also a bit of an exaggeration because the actual attempt at colonization wasn't really proper it's the only an actual greater attempt kind of came in the form of kind of came in the form of laws applied by a man known as thomas cromwell this isn't this isn't oliver cromwell by the way just to clarify that yeah <laughs> so um, you say cromwell like wait i know a cromwell <laughs> yeah not that one we'll get to, we'll get to him. um who was under henry the eighth at the time you know 
a, a man who loves sleeping with a lot of women. Um, You're describing relations that exist, like uh, t- to get Marxy about it in the 1100s. Like we'll talk about uh, what is it like f- forms of society and colonization, and like if you say that word today, capital C colonization, we're thinking about like the 1700 style, 1600 style colonization. Like those forms of production didn't like exist yet. Would that be an accurate no. way to describe it? Like that's, and that would be why I say it, why it didn't happen earlier. Cause that form had yet to, uh, evolve. <laughs> but this is the thing. Like, um, a lot of people seem to forget that Ireland was a very early stage in the development of the British empire. I would argue that the, the actual colonization of the island came as a almost a testing ground for the British Empire because it was kind of a start for them to <laughs> practice different colonization efforts, especially. You're like our I mean, Philippines. Was a, was... Like the U.S. showed up in the yes, Philippines in the 1800s, yeah. like test out. How does it work if we try to take over the world? <laughs> I thought Hawaii was kind of the same thing. Though. Sure, yeah. <laughs> the Pacific, um, but, I mean, Cuba. We started showing yeah. up in Cuba in 1819. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's I suppose it's not that long ago, and all things considered. You, you take after your dad, and in this case, our dad is yeah. the king of England. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yeah. But essentially, under Henry VIII, uh, this um, Thomas Cromwell, he, he basically enacted a policy of surrender and regret, which was basically a policy that granted the elite of Ireland royal protections without regards for their ethnic origin in exchange for them basically obeying the central government. I say this in quotes of the Pale, which was that area around Dublin that was controlled by the English. And surrendering Already all dividing their the Irish into classes. Like yeah, explicitly. basically. So, that, you know, again, a very early effort, kind of. Um, and they also had to surrender all their lands to the English crown if they wanted this to be part of this policy, essentially. So the scheme was basically, in other words, designed to assimilate the Gaelic upper classes and to develop loyalty towards the crown by giving them concessions under the central Tudor government. So this is Tudor times we're at, basically, because again, Henry VIII, that was during the Tudor era of England, so 16th century, essentially. But however, this led to a greater encroachment on local Irish autonomy, and this in turn brought English and Irish systems, which were on the same island, essentially, at the time, into greater conflict with one another. And this was also during a time of Protestant Reformation, which was which under King Henry VIII. So again, there was more tensions with the Catholics of Ireland at the time and the developing Protestant state of England. Um, at this point, this what do you six- think the dis- the distribution would be? So we're still talking, we're talking 1500s. Because we have Catholic and Protestant already uh, emerging as a, uh, <laughs> let's call it an early culture war ingredient of... Dis- discontent amongst the how many yeah, people were still um, following the full-on pagan gaelic like traditional religious practices or see the, the, the truth is um a lot of people think this about this with ireland even in the middle ages but the truth is ireland was very much Chris- christianized by the time the vikings came yeah. which would have been the ninth century i mean and St- i mean st patrick died i can't even remember what year to be honest with you but you know, after St. Patrick arrived in Ireland, I mean, Ireland developed its own form of Christianity. It wasn't even what I would call traditional Catholic Christianity initially. It was a form of um, Gaelic Christianity, which had its own kind of version of Christianity. But it was it, it did follow a lot of the Catholic tenets, which again kind of brought conflict between developing Protestantism and the already 
present form of Catholicism that resided within the country. And this led to essentially success rebellions to breaking out between uh, 1550 and 1590. And this actually made England realize one thing, that actually developing a stable central government within Ireland isn't a simple process because we don't like them. <laughs> <laughs> so under, uh, I think it was Mary I and Elizabeth I, um, they eventually decided that the long-term solutions to the problem of colonization would come in the form of two things. Essentially, it came in the form of composition, which was whereby privately armed forces were abolished and provinces were occupied by English troops under the command of governors, which were exempted from taxation. So that was the first kind of major long-term thing. So it was kind of to bring a lot of the, a lot of the counties under direct rule, essentially. And then the second long-term solution would have been what we call plantation, which is quite an important one. And this was, plantations were basically they were areas that were settled with people from England to bring English language and culture to the country, essentially, whilst remaining loyal to the crown. And, th and this led to basically the, confis the confiscation of native Irish land by rich English landowners and the state directly, which further alienated the local Gaelic community and created a divide amongst the Protestant settlers, which generally came from Scotland and England, of course, um, and this is a phenomenon that's, that's still felt to this day, especially in the province of Ulster, whereby most of the actual plantations took place during the reign of James I. So again, it wasn't it wasn't a short term process. I mean, we're talking centuries of yeah, seriously. colonization this, efforts, essentially. Here. This makes sense as to why it gets uh, there's just so little knowledge, because I don't think like it's hard for the American conscious to even imagine a period of longer than 200 years. <laughs> so the, yeah. the idea that this has been happening for not even just a thousand years, more than a thousand years, like oh, of, you know, re of relationships between, you know, the English, the before, like the invading Romans, the, uh, the Vikings you're talking about, like, yeah, oh, it's not as simple as we rolled into town and said, you're all Catholics now. And it was done. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, that's just it, you know, and this is this is kind of why it's led to certain events that have happened today. But the colonization process eventually reached what we call the crisis point in the form of the Nine Year War, I believe. And that came as the result of English overextension within the province of Ulster. Um, it, it, long story short, a lot of earls rebelled um, from England or from from the crown, essentially. Um, but they eventually lost in 1603 and only able to live in the newly found restricted conditions that the crown had developed within Ireland, which basically eliminated a lot of Gaelic um, culture, at least the ability to freely express it. They eventually fled in 1607, and this is known historically as the um, Flight of the Earls, I believe. And this, this paved the way for the eventual plantation of Ulster and great numbers of people from Scotland, England moved into Ireland after the, after the lands of native Irish people were, of course, confiscated. And Jesus England pattern. by this point controlled... Yeah, we're seeing a pattern, I know. Um, England by this point controlled most of the country and the seeds of division within the native population were firmly planted. However, this is ignoring even under Cromwell. So this was during the um, the revolution in England at the time, whereby Oliver Cromwell overflew the monarchy. Um, Cromwell wasn't that nice to the Irish either. He, um, basically between 1649 and 53, he killed tens of thousands of Irish people in what could be considered nothing short of an ethnic genocide. 
basically forcing them off their lands to from the northeast of Ulster into the more rocky, desolate lands of Connacht, which is the um, western end of Ireland, so it's less friendly, basically, for farming. And, and essentially, that meant that a lot of people within the country lived in those lands, and they could only farm potatoes. You know, they could no longer farm grain or anything like that. Confiscated lands were again given to Protestant settlers loyal to the British government, and the Gaelic language itself eventually became outlawed. You know, the, col the colonization efforts themselves, however, were turned to have officially ended, if I'm not mistaken, in 1801, which was following an act of union, which essentially abolished the independent Irish parliament. So it, it, essentially, it was a devolved government prior to its full integration into the British government in London. Um, which in, in essence made Ireland fully part of the UK. So again, the colonization effort didn't fully end until the 19th century. And essentially, there was no longer a devolved government, but the, but the actual state of Ireland, if you will, or the Kingdom of Ireland, as it was formerly known as, became part of the British Empire and was directly governed by the Parliament in London. So what affected, except for, I mean, this, I feel silly even asking this question. What prevented the Irish from, uh, like, militarily or by force? From, what prevented effective resistance against the English? Well, it's important to understand, unfortunately, that Ireland was very much, it wasn't a unified state, even during the Middle Ages. It was primarily tribal um, chieftains. This is where you start hearing they, claims all... of nationalism. I was just looking up the the book you mentioned, in like the first, just like as a response to claims of Irish nationalism, and as leftists, we you hear the word nationalist, you go, oh my god, huh? But this it sounds to yeah. me more akin to let's say Indian nationalism, where the Indians got together, the actual people who live in India got together and said, hey, uh, British people were sick of your shit and and kicked them out, like a type of positive nationalism, I guess, for lack of a better word. You know, uniting together as a group of people who live in an area to get rid of the foreign power that is moving in and uh, taking all of your valuables. Yeah, I mean, you know, basically, you, you know, I can understand kind of the parallels in that department. And yes, Irish nationalism kind of did develop, as we'll get into in a second, through different means. But a big reason why the Irish weren't able to effectively resist the English was kind of twofold. One was technological limitations. Unfortunately, the English, they simply, technolo technologically speaking, they kind of outmatched a lot of the defensive capabilities of the Irish at the time. And the second reason was because Ireland was so tribal and because there wasn't, in effect, a lot of unity amongst each, amongst each county, it was hard to form, in essence, an effective resistance because, and this was on top of, I mean, this was on top of support from uh, the Kingdom of Spain, I believe, um, because of, you know, oh no, these Protestants are marching around again doing things, you know. <laughs> Spain didn't like that, so they basically said, oh, we'll help you. Spanish um, we'll give you money. It's kind of the same thing, but that was kind of a big reason. There wasn't enough unity, a lot of people would argue, and there wasn't enough power, essentially. And this this was it. You know, we there was, it was outmatched in that department. Lorcan, I want to uh, play a clip that, if I've done all of my technology right, this may or may not come through 
the, oh, let me collect some stuff. If you're a leftist or anywhere near uh, leftist circles, you will hear people talking about uh, people of color voices, Black Lives Matter. We need to listen to the people who are the most affected by imperialism, the most negatively affected by imperialism. And if I'm trying to think of people who are most negatively affected by imperialism, I think of the entire continent of Africa's working class. I mean, ignoring the few oligarchs who may run the like client states that then help out uh, <laughs> help out the West yeah, with their resources. Ignoring them, uh, the actual people who live in Africa and make the things and work under uh, these conditions. So the International Criminal Court, a hilarious, uh, let's call it a court, a, a, a goofy, silly yeah, organization. We'll call, we'll call it a court just for being nice. <laughs> so to like I'll load this up front, the ICC, International Criminal Court, who's not a member of it? Uh, the United States. The United States, in fact, did a bit of law where if anyone tried to uh, bring up an American on any kind of charges under the International Criminal Court, that they would straight up fucking bomb the Hague, which is, what country? Is that in the Netherlands? Hague? There it is. <laughs> it's like the headquarters of the International Criminal Court. I'm Googling it because I got to do it. Well, yeah, but it's kind of funny because but how would they be exempt? I mean, if if, if they were exempt, we haven't joined it. I mean, they can, if we don't join um, it, how are they gonna? <laughs> well, I mean, it kind of makes Yugoslavia make more sense now. If you really think about it, why no one was charged with the criminal bombings of the entirety of Serbia, essentially? God. The, the, there was an attempt made to do a, hey, uh, people are doing all kinds of crimes internationally. Yeah, it's in the Netherlands, The Hague. And we have a thing where I think it's straight up called like the Bomb The Hague Act, where if they try to bring up any of America's war crimes, I mean, you'd say, wow, there's an international criminal court. Well, we talk about like George W. I'm assuming a lot of people who listen to me are Democrats, so they'll be like, George W. Bush, he is bad. Well, I agree, but... Why hasn't he been brought up on any kind of charges? We have all the we have the International Criminal Court to prosecute war crimes. The International Criminal Court is pretty much a, a tool, weirdly enough, of the United States where they'll just bring in. It's mostly Africans. It's, they'll bring up at like African war criminals. And it's not saying that their crimes don't exist, but well, well, that's not true. They also brought in people from Yugoslavia. Oh sure, them of genocide <laughs> among other things. So we kind of we like the International Criminal Court if they are prosecuting what the United States considers an enemies but we don't like it if they want to do anything to us uh for doing the same thing uh, why am i saying all of this well vladimir putin a guy who uh, i don't know if you've heard of him he's the president of russia and he has been brought up on war crime charges by the icc and uh the reason that has been done like the gamesmanship move of that is now it makes it a little weird for putin to go anywhere because if he lands in a country that is part of the icc Technically, there's a warrant out for his arrest, and they should arrest him and haul him off to the ICC and take, put him on trial. And uh, so South Africa uh, ha has comment. A South African political leader, who I'll talk about after the clip, has comment for that. That's the context of this clip. People are bringing up what happens if he shows up in South Africa. Are they going to turn him over to the U.S.? And he says... Putin is welcomed here. And no one is going to arrest Putin. If needs be, we'll go and fetch Putin from the airport to his meeting. He will address, finish all his meetings. We'll take him back to the airport. We're not going to be told by this hypocrites of the International Criminal Court who know the real violators of human rights, who know the murderers of this world. That former uh, premier, uh, uh, prime minister of uh, Tony Blair, 
admitted that they made a horrible mistake when it comes to Saddam Hussein. They have not been charged today. Bush is still there. They have not been charged till to date. So he just brought up that George Bush and Tony Blair got us into the Iraq war, killed uh, by the end of it, literally 1 million Iraqis. And that's a low ball estimate of deaths uh, resulting from our oh, military very, conflict very. and sanctions and various other like starvation measures. And neither of them have been brought in front of the ICC. And he's saying, if you're going to arrest Putin and try and saying that we as South Africa should put him under arrest and drag him to the international criminal court, why not Tony Blair? Why not George W. Bush? And he continues. Yeah. And then Obama killed Gaddafi. And then nothing has happened. We're here today with Libya being destroyed and unable to recover because of America. We know very well that where NATO gets involved, those are terrorists. We know very well where the U.S. says we're going in to uh, install peace. That place will never know peace as long as America has visited that place. That line makes me fucking tear up. We know wherever the U.S. claims they are going to make peace, that place will never know peace as long as America is involved. We don't want uh, ICC's hypocrisy to apply here in our country. Who's the guy saying this? Whose voice are you hearing? This is a guy named Julius Malema. What is he important? Well, he is a South African... Poli I'm just reading off his Wikipedia here. He's a South African politician who is a member of parliament and the leader of the Economic Freedom Fighters, who are the Economic Freedom Fighters. Economic Freedom Fighters, the EFF, is a South African left-wing, far-left, pan-Africanist pan and uh, Marxist-Leninist political party founded by expelled former African National Congress Youth League president Julius Malema. <laughs> so what are you hearing right now? You are hearing the voice of the international left. This is what people of color, Africans who are leftists, who are communists, think. And not even just the ones who are communists, because like almost all of Africa is for some reason siding on the side of uh, the Ukraine war should end and there should be negotiations and they are happy enough to deal with Russia and China, uh, more and more happy to deal with Russia and China, in fact. And why do I bring this up? Because the criticism I hear the most often is that when I say that I think the war in Ukraine should end uh, diplomatically and we should have negotiations figured out, because that's how all wars end, I am told that I am racist, that I am blank, various kinds of phobic, and then you go and talk to actual black and brown people who live in the countries who are the most affected by imperialism, and this is what they yeah. say, and they'll say to me, oh, Pepper, they are just so fucking stupid that they can't figure it, they've been tricked, they've been bewitched, yeah. Putin showed up and cast a fucking magic spell, and now they're all just so stupid, they can't figure out their own lives, and how is that not the most fucking racist thing on earth to say to me? But it's, it's, it's ironic in the sense that they, people have the goal to criticize their viewpoints when the U.S. itself... I mean, it's ironic that the U.S. invades other countries in the idea of spreading order whenever the U.S. itself can't even control it, its, own, its own surroundings, essentially. 
given the whole state of affairs within its within its own domestic environment, if you will. Yeah, you got the Mexican president who's saying, hey, you guys complain about your drug problem. That really sucks. How about you deal with your drug problem and stop blaming it on, like, Mexico and surrounding... Oh, China is why there's an opioid epidemic. Maybe it's because everybody's lives are so shitty and falling apart that the best they can turn to is to turn their brain off with chemicals. Like, maybe that... <laughs> yeah, as it turns out, yeah, that's what a lot of people do. Uh, and it's you know again, but from from the statement, kind of to me at least, it's it demonstrates that I mean, and and let's be fair here, a lot of people post a lot of out of context pictures of like different people in Africa holding up Ukrainian flags, trying to say, oh see, only only some people in Africa are brainwashed. These are the good ones, basically. <laughs> they're saying this about them, but the point is. It's just you being racist, but trying to suggest you're not racist on the basis of the fact that most people in Africa, statistically speaking, view the Ukraine war with a more analytical lens, which is what the left in the West, I would like to think, should be doing, but they're not. They're able to see a pattern and call it out because they don't really have a dog in the race. They don't live either in the Imperial Corps or in Russia, so it's really hard to paint. Like, oh, they're a puppet of blank or blank. They just go, oh, yeah, yeah, the U.S. does this all the time. We watch them do it in this country, this country, this country. Like you just listed, we did it in Libya, we saw them do it in Iraq, we saw them do it and see them do it currently in Syria, and this is just another one. But everyone here is, like, stupefied because it's white people. Like, it's happening. It's white-on-white crime, (laughs) and we can't fucking analyze it because we're being told by both the stenographers of the state and the state itself that the war is actually this and people are just like stuck in it i don't i don't get it maybe this is what i was like talking to people when they were trying to like in 2010 when they talked to me and i was more of like a democrat stooge maybe that's what i felt like to them but oh we can't be perfect (laughs) (laughs) i don't even blame the people it sounds like i'm going oh if all these dumb people would just get their shit together it's not we're the most propagandized nation in the country and why do i know that because american leftists told me about it and then i read books and i went and like talked to other people and listened to people from other countries like if you talk to communists or socialists from any country that is not the united states certain parts of the uk other like west like nato countries if you talk to any but talk to an indian communist They'll have, it'll take them one second to tell you their opinion on Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. And, and, it, and, and it is, a dis- to me, it's a disgrace that a lot of people can call themselves a socialist when they can't take a critical lens of any war and just go on and jump on a bandwagon and tweet about it every day because they think that it somehow makes them morally superior to the average working class person who by and large doesn't really support war in general. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, I feel like a lot of the quote unquote support for this whole needless violence in Ukraine is is a simple exaggeration by the the media, if you will. And, And especially in, you know, especially in Ireland where we have a more, I mean, for God's sake, we had a fucking like, we had we had we had gay pride in Dublin very recently, and they had the the organizers had the goal to put the Ukrainian flag on the LGBT <laughs> flag. You know who loves the gays? The Ukrainian government. They love oh, the gays. Yes, of course. <laughs> 
Oh wait, what's that? What's that? Who's that? Who's that nice man? They have a picture of him quarrelling. So I wonder what he did. <laughs> I'm sure he was friendly. Good man. Well, Bandera were... loved the gays. He loved them so much. He wanted. Ah, to... He loved everyone. That's why he fucking murdered all the Jews. Well, he wanted to put them all in one place so they could be together and happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, 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 like it's just it, it, it's it's ridiculous. And these same people who call themselves anti-fascists support these very same people in the same stroke, essentially. Look, if a it's white mad. guy in Texas says a slur, that's a Nazi. But if a Ukrainian puts on battle armor and a gun and goes out to exterminate people they don't like, that's not that's a U.S. ally. That's not yeah. a Nazi. <laughs> Who's the real enemy here? Some asshole saying dumb shit in the grocery store or someone literally with a gun to the head of... <laughs> I suppose on the side of that, I mean, with regards to guns and, and so on, there's been a big, um, I suppose, discussion of gun laws again within the US. We're going through this whole cycle again, I've noticed as of late. The all these gun conditions, these gun conversations continue to lose, uh, lose the plot <laughs> to say a freaking Britishism. Right, it it doesn't really matter what everyone's greatest wishes, hopes, and dreams are for the gun condition of the United States. If it were up to me, yep. sure, I would love if there were not four weapons for every man, woman, and child, but that's how it, like, the conditions are that, so any kind of fantasy about, oh, we'll take the guns from this group and not this group, and then the people we put in charge of taking the guns definitely won't just fuck us over, right? Uh, the only people who are going to have their guns yeah. seized are people like me. Like, they're going to come and get the communists' weapons, they're going to come and get the socialist weapons, the fucking black liberation leaders, the trans, radical trans activists, they're going to take your weapons. It's the cops. The cops have not changed and they're not gonna change so i don't understand this weird like legalist argument of oh we need to simply disarm the bad part of the proletariat <laughs> while keeping the rest of us yeah. there. like it's ridiculous and then on the other hand i mean the right-wing media of course have been you know taking taking various recent school shootings um and have kind of been using it as a way of dividing people further i would argue kind of on the basis of whatever gender a shooter identifies as essentially yeah we had a shooting recently in nashville and the only re I'm, I'm not going to go on a ton of, we have a shooting every other freaking day in america and like redressing the particulars of when did the police enter and when did blank person shoot themselves in blank and when did they it, it's not horribly relevant but the conversation that came out of it was that yeah the the nashville shooter was probably trans and how does that affect the conversation and my argument is that it doesn't affect it at all because if you're going to take no. the weird stance that the left puts the quote left in the United States puts paints themselves into these weird corners because they'll get online and be like, notice how none of these shooters are blank, blank or blank identity signifiers. And I'm over here saying, guys, like, it, you know, it's going to happen eventually. Like The problem with the uh, school shooters aren't school shooters because they're white guys necessarily <laughs> or because of or because of how they identify it's it's literally a product of the from the way i understand it it's a deeper product of the of the sickness that that infests the u.s in general as a kind of societal decay almost if you will um as a consequence of this 
unregulated dystopian capitalist society. It's capitalist al- it's alienation that Marx described a long time ago and we're just seeing different ingredients of it and if you describe it that way they'll be like are you saying blanket no I'm not saying any of that. I'm not saying that all of our problems are caused by capitalism but the fact that we live in this false competition and this false like misery that we're all kept in it does lead to bad things. Like when when crazy people get on TV and talk about all oh, the conspiracy and the Jews run the government and blah blah, blah that usually comes from mm. at its absolute core some kind of acu- uh, I don't want to say like <laughs> accurate observation, just the observation of wow we have all this money and riches but things are so bad clearly there must be some cartoon or alien or wizard level conspiracy to make things this bad where no it's just normal boring business shit that makes things this bad it's the defense of private property above all kinds of life it's (laughs) the enforcement of uh laws that only exist to defend one class over the other and when you look around and try to analyze it if you don't have a class-based analysis, you end up either I saying, well, I guess all white people are evil or the reaction. Oh, I guess all black people are evil. (laughs) Both of which are horribly inaccurate for the same reason. No one is how they are because they were born. We're all just humans. Essentializing people, adding essential human characteristics like, ah, white man, violent, is just as stupid as going, ah, black man, violent. Like, they're both stupid and wrong for the same reason. People are who they are because of their conditions. Yeah, it's based on idealism, uh, ultimately. And I think I, I think this is kind of why, like, don't get me wrong, yes, there should, I, I do believe that injustices against minorities on the basis of their identities should be countered, but it should be countered on the basis of the fact that it divides the working class. I mean, this is the whole point. This is why it is done. I mean, that's why racism is so prevalent. It was to divide working class people on the basis of their skin color. I mean, at least in the U.S.'s history, from the way I've understood it anyway. And, um, you know, again, similar kind of thing in Ireland, Catholic versus Protestant, based on historical tensions. Like, this is the key thing which has prevented any form of social progress for the past couple of centuries, I would argue. You know, people need to stop falling into this corner, if you will, and actually try to dig themselves out of it. Yeah, Ireland's problem is not that some people are Catholic, some people are Protestant, and therefore there can never be peace. Ireland's problems are the same as everybody else's problems. People need housing, food, education, travel, access to you know various services. And those things are never addressed. No one is out there campaigning, saying that they're going to bring you those things. Well, I'm, I'm sure, actually, you have more parties. Maybe there is a little party out there who is campaigning for those things. But at least in the U.S., well, well, they don't bring up any of that. on paper, but the problem is nothing is ever done. Because, again, as I spoke about in the last episode, we don't have a government and still don't have a government. So nothing ever gets done. You're in yeah. a very United States-ish situation where you have two uh, people. Not it's not even just that they are ineffective. If they were able to affect all of their policies, it would not change your your working class life or the people who live in your neighborhood. Only increased access to housing and jobs and like all the boring stuff no one ever wants to bring up. All the economic things that actually change. I love that the name of the party of that guy, Julius, is the Economic Freedom Fighters. <laughs> and if you go to their Twitter, yeah. their shit is covered in pro-LGBT, pro-diversity. Like, they still are doing all of that. But that's not their 
only shit. <laughs> that can't be your only shit. You need to start with, I had this other note in here. You hear about housing first approach to homelessness. Like, yeah, duh. The way you approach homelessness is to provide housing, which sounds like it's reductionist, but is not. That's like the, the core problem is people don't have anywhere to live. If you can take care of the core issues, which are almost always economic because of the class society we were forced into, the economic issues are what actually matter and affect people's lives. And no, you wouldn't just eradicate all bigotry by fixing economic issues, but you could at least have a freaking start at it. If somebody's an asshole because they're starving all the time, it's really hard to convince them to first stop being an asshole, then we'll give you food. Give them the food. Give them the food, yeah. and then you can talk about it. <laughs> like, that's a starting point, at least, yeah. And I think, and I think it's like I think this is it. And pe- people within the Western left, at the very least, need to ca- actually try to connect with people more. And secondly, they also need to stop acting like middle class trash because that's what a lot of people see us as. Unfortunately, like they're fucking better than everybody because they know the magic words. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. You know, unfortunately, yeah, and I hate that shit. I've always have, and I think um, I think we need to reflect or introspect in that kind of sense and self-criticize, to use a Maoist term, just to please some people, um, <laughs> to kind of to get out of that rut, in other words, and to actually show working-class people that the left does one have solutions, two isn't ideal dreamers, and three isn't just based entirely on fancy words, if you will. Let me read a, a, a one short Mao paragraph. It's my favorite fucking Mao concept, which is no investigation, no right to speak. And that is, unless you have investigated a problem, you will be deprived of the right to speak on it. Isn't that too harsh, question mark? Not in the least. When you have not probed into a problem, into the present facts and its past history, and know nothing of its essentials, whatever you say about it will undoubtedly be nonsense. Talking nonsense solves no problems, as everyone knows, so why is it unjust to deprive you of the right to speak? Quite a few comrades always keep their eyes shut and talk nonsense, and for a communist that is disgraceful. How can a communist keep his eyes shut and talk nonsense? It won't do. It won't do. You must investigate. You must not talk nonsense. <laughs> People need yeah, to read Mao. He's so that. fucking accessible. <laughs> he really is. It's true. But what does he Definitely. mean by that? <laughs> he means what he says. Exactly. It's so clear. It's so just blunt to the point. You don't have any of this weird Marx shit where it's a sentence that goes on for seven pages and you're like, "Uh, okay, I got to translate five different German words. I got to look up six different French newspapers and then maybe I'll know what he means. (laughs) Nah, Mao just gets right to it because he's talking to peasants. He's talking to people who are illiterate for the most, like when they at the start and then they, hey, they taught him how to read communists. Whoa. Everybody, we are almost out of time here, but I want Lorcan again for for mostly the Americans in our audience. We have heard of the we know about the the vague England taking over Ireland, and we've talked a lot about how like that is a a not just centuries long but millennia long history 
of interactions. And I want to talk about the most famous instance here, the Irish potato famine, which I don't think is what it is called over there. Tell it like, what was that about? It's t- technically, it's known as the Great Hunger. Now, I, I myself don't speak Gaelic, unfortunately, because I was never taught it up here, because schools up here do not teach the Irish language, I'm afraid. Well, some do, rather, but most schools... Is it as simple as a thing of where if it's Irish, it's Gaelic, if it's Scottish, it's Gaelic? (laughs) Yes, that's correct. Okay, good. (laughs) Um, But, but, you know, the thing is, I never got the chance to learn Gaelic in school because it wasn't taught. And that's simply because unionist politicians for many years opposed Irish language acts, essentially, to allow schools to nationally teach Irish and before if that, it was straight up north. criminalized, right? Well, yes, you know, like I said previously, ago, but... for much of Ireland's history, prior to the formation of the Free State, Gaelic was very much illegal. But kind of, you know, to back on topic, I suppose, um, the Great Hunger is what it's technically known as from 1845 to 1852. And it was basically a famine that began as a consequence of a fungus known as Phytophora um, infestans which um, was basically a fungus that invaded a potato plant and caused it to decay rapidly. It was actually first spawned within the US in the summer of 1843, I believe. And this was fought, but it was actually, but, but it was eventually fought to have entered Ireland by August of 1845, which was when the famine technically started. Um, because two thirds of the population of Ireland relied on the potato as kind of a means of subsistence, when the blight came and exerted its full effects across the nation, it became a disaster, in other words, for most of the population. Starvation and disease became extensive, and the death toll is ultimately unknown due to the ultimate uncertainty of statistical estimates of the time. Most scholars estimate over one million directly perished, and the population of the actual country fell about one quarter. And that was, a co- that was due to a combination of death and immigration to the United States. As a matter of fact, and across Europe, of course, uh, many travelled on what was known as coffin ships, which um, which was basically these ships that were as part of a panic-stricken, unregulated exodus, created a, what, what, what created what was actually known as the largest population movement of the 19th century. And they were called coffin ships, essentially, because they were so um, dirty and so on sanitary that thousands of people and there was no food of course as well so thousands of people died actually crossing the atlantic to the u.s which is why they were called coffin ships essentially and you know we're talking around two i think around 200 to 300,000 people who immigrated on these kind of ships in total so quite a large proportion of people now the unique aspect of the film and, and this is also american audiences will remember you this is the period. This yeah. is the period where you're hanging signs in your shop saying "No Irish need apply," etc. This is yeah, because yeah. because it turns out when people first go to America, Americans don't like them. We for hate some the reason. fuck out of people until they eventually become the cops, and then we like them. And that did happen. Yeah, <laughs> the Irish really, cop is a whole that. stereotype over here. It really is, and it's. Kind of, I just. I don't, I've never understood it, but it's kind of funny. You gotta when not die, you so you start do. serving the empire. Like, hey man, we'll feed you if you like beat up these different new these new immigrants. If you beat them up for all oh, the Italians, the Ita- I'm trying to remember the order. Was it Irish then Italians? Was it Italians then Irish? I can't remember. Man, either way, black people were moving up from thing. the south, and that's who they had to beat up to. <laughs> but essentially, the unique aspect of the famine was that it existed during a time of a growing empire. So again, it was part of the British Empire in kind of its growing period. 
And the nation itself was technically an agricultural workshop for the empire. It, it produced plenty of grain and linen, as a matter of fact. Despite modern claims by many scholars, which try to mitigate the responsibility that Britain actually had in exacerbating the problems of the famine, they technically could have largely mitigated the consequences if they wanted to, because Ireland itself had a substantial amount of food resources, which could have been diverted to feed the people as a whole, as well as they could have closed ports as well, which could have prevented its exportation to begin with, but that didn't happen. Ireland instead continued to export extremely large quantities of food to the mainland, despite the potato crop failing. Despite, despite the fact it was failing, the nation itself was still producing enough grain to feed the population. But the problem was England didn't see grain as something that people should, you know, eat. They saw it as a money <laughs> crop, so they wanted to export it. In fact, 75% of Irish soil was devoted to what we call profit crops. And these were grown purely for the purposes of exportation to England and elsewhere. And wealthy, predominantly wealthy Protestant landowners, of course, controlled much of the land to begin with. And this led to also what we called an eviction problem. During the famine, basically, it became such a problem because landowners didn't want to deal with many poor tenants claiming larger plots with larger bills. And basically what they did was they cleared people in mass. And a lot of these landowners were, of course, uh, British. In fact, the British Foreign Secretary, mm. I believe, who was um, uh, Lord uh, Palmerston, I believe, if, I'm not, if I can remember correctly, he was said to have evicted about 2,000 people from his own, you know, land, of course, yeah. which is... English, so 2,000 right. English people? <laughs> no, just, just 2,000 Irish people that he Oh, I understand. Like, of course. You're saying that they are English landowners, but Irish tenants. Yes, essentially. Um, a lot of the time it was just that. So, yeah. Um, it it sounds exactly like what they... Around. Like in the... It's like years later, almost a century later, you have the Vietnamese War where we're starving millions of Vietnamese people because it's more profitable to yeah. export the rice than to allow them to eat the rice. And then you have other kind situations where it's like oh yeah this warehouse where all this rice was left to rot because the people couldn't afford it so they said fuck you and then like the first revolts are storming the warehouses and taking the rice back well that's what happened during the famine even i mean people people were so desperate they used to like vandalize bakeries essentially because Good. they couldn't even afford bread um but essentially you know it was estimated that around a quarter of a million people were evicted from 1849 to 1854, and this was only officially recorded, so it could have been many more. This led, of course, to, and this, you know, again, this lack of redistribution of grain to the, the starving population led to the exacerbations of the famine and why it led to so much death and so much misery. It was simply because the English government didn't care. In fact, the former Conservative PM at the time, which was um, John Russell, uh, made a statement, I believe, in 1847, which kind of summarizes perfectly the indifference that the English government had to the suffering of the people of Ireland at the time. And I quote this literally, um, it must be fairly understood that we cannot feed the people. We can, at we can at best keep down prices where there is no regular market and prevent established dealers from raising prices much beyond the fair price with ordinary profits. So in other words, just make the market primary, not people's needs. We are full... I, the, 
it's it's just it's like such a, an obvious thing to say, especially to present company. Was like this is the system functioning entirely as designed. Like it's not an aberration of the system that there was a famine. It's like no, logically, well, I should say, sort of according to capital logic, if you only prioritize the the uh, creation the reproduction of capital yes it makes a lot of sense to grow uh like you were saying 70 plus percent of your viable farming land to be growing essentially cash crops entirely for export not for the people who actually live there and then if a famine results yeah that's that's just what happens (laughs) was this still in straight up like mouth Malthus was Malthusianism still uh, considered popular? I'm trying to get my dates right, and that's the belief that poor people's problems are their own fault, and the best thing you can do for poor people is to help them die as fast as possible to clear up surplus population. Was that still like well, the common? Right. Yeah, I mean, it kind of is. I mean, this is the problem. I mean, that Malthus didn't really die; he's just kind of infiltrated every fucking political circle with his shit. Um, but it's kind of all based on that same kind of philosophy, if you will, combined with the capitalist philosophy. In fact, because the, the go together the great the um found the go ahead. Sorry, I was just saying those two philosophies go together very well. They're very compatible. Oh, absolutely! No, absolutely. And the thing is, you know, because the famine was such a disaster, and because the, the British showed such a lack of care or any ability to mitigate the problems in any sense. And many people have debated whether or not it constitutes an ethnic, gen- an ethnic genocide, if you will. Uh, although the problem is many historians have dropped this analysis due to a lack of evidence of intent, unfortunately. Oh, I would argue... It's interesting, because there's other famines yeah. that I think they would not uh, drop the intent part of the equation. <laughs> I can't yeah, really dance yeah. around this without it, saying it. It just shows you it's very selective. You like, know, they say this isn't a genocide, but yet they'd say the Holodomor is a genocide. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. When a, when a famine happens anywhere near a communist state, that shit is considered entirely on purpose, entirely their fault, and enti- like it's, it is considered a genocide. If it's the Soviet Union and a famine happens anywhere near them, if it's uh, China and a famine happens anywhere near them, the thing I like to point out to anyone who brings this up is... What happened next? If you identify a Russian famine under the Soviets or a Ukrainian famine under the Soviets and you then move forward in Soviet history, find me yeah. another famine. And you can't. Because before uh, before communism took over, <laughs> to use hilarious terminology, in China and in the former Soviet Union, there were famines all the time. You can hear all about... It was hilariously common. Yeah, you can hear about the all of the 1800s Chinese famines, 17, 16, 15, 1400s, all of these famines. Like every few years, every couple of decades, there'd be a massive famine. It would kill a million people. And it was just, yep, sucks. You're a peasant and that's your life. You farm and sometimes there's famines, like in the Bible. And then after the Soviets take over, after Mao takes over, no more famines. And they'll say, oh, well, there were. They just have successfully hidden them from every historian and all possible evidence is just locked away somewhere in Stalin's secret vault of atrocities. But they end famines. They increase production. Like, 
If there was some kind of Irish communist revolution, they first thing would happen is, wow, 70% of our land is being used for bullshit. Let's instead use it to feed the people. And that seems like a pretty direct solution to this problem that is impossible under capitalism because that does not serve capital. Precisely. And I mean, and I would argue that a lot of the initial racism that the Irish experienced on travel to America was primarily or at least a partial consequence of the fact that a lot of Irish people were essentially the foundations of the early trade movements within the United States. Oh. I would like to kind of, kind, kind of, you know, I would kind of yeah, finish what my pointer is with a quote kind of from um, Patricia Harty, who wrote, um, I believe it was the greatest Irish Americans of the 20th century. Pretty interesting book that is. Um, Fleeing starvation with few or no material possessions, they brought their music and song and tales of home as they spread out across the land. Until there was not a corner they didn't touch or leave their mark upon. They became American, and yet, despite their identification with the American way of life, they continued to have an interest in their Irish heritage and and a sometimes poignant emotional connection to the land of their ancestors. It's a lovely quote. Thank you. Well, that was kind of, you know, I think it's I think it's kind of poignant in that sense because to me it illustrates that you know if people if people were able to travel that far and potentially risk death just to get to the US and I mean this is the kind of the thing and and, and the same this this same despair became kind of a foundation of in my opinion a very American concept socialism I mean it is they try to say it isn't but it always kind of has been and you know to lead those kind of connections to me it shows what what the us can be and that it doesn't have to be seen as this jingoistic um militaristic um capitalist state that infringes upon the rights of other nations you know to me it can be a lot more than that and i think despite the tragedy of the famine people still try to do right and they still try to form movements and I believe, despite all that, I think it's a lesson for a lot of people that people can, that working class people can do great things, and they always have. It's never been the upper class. It's always been every great thing that has ever masses. been done in human history was done by workers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As it turns, as it turns out, and I think a lot of leftists need to remember that. The oligarchs did not go to the fucking moon. The oligarchs didn't build our great buildings or our great cities. Workers, the people who we call dumbasses, too stupid to run their own lives, they create all of society. Now, it's to spec of the working class, at least in the U.S. at the moment, but the idea that we can't govern ourselves or run our own shit is just ridiculous to me. You drive over bridges every day that if we're not made properly, you would die. Who made those bridges? Did Elon Musk come down and do shit about that? No. A bunch of working dumbasses who you probably, who a lot of American leftists would find despicable built your entire country. <laughs> yeah. I walk. It creates passion in me to to know that as truth. <laughs> that it's not that. Oh, I hope the working class is able to govern themselves. No, we have proven ourselves more than capable of this. In fact, superior <laughs> to these fucking dumb oligarch-based forms of government. And so I, I have no fear of that anymore. If any, the, the only I'm, I just wait in rapt anticipation for uh, for things to continue developing. As do I, as do I, but I do not lose hope 
and nor should other people. I'm very hopeful right now. You're looking at, who's it, like, even (laughs) Macron, like yesterday, France, Macron had one meeting with Xi Jinping, and he's like, all right, we got to decrease our reliance on the United States, and we got to find peace in Ukraine. (laughs) I'm like, damn, Macron, that's sure. Maybe it has to do with the fact that, like, your capital is on fire and your people are extremely pissed right now. The A protest that people are talking like, maybe this will whip into something. I'm like, I'm not holding my breath for that, but this is really cool. I love seeing the French storming the capital, the what is it, the headquarters of BlackRock. It's like, yes, these are the places. <laughs> like, if you're going to burn down any buildings, burn down BlackRock's headquarters, burn down Vanguard's headquarters. It doesn't like do anything to hurt them, but it's a big symbolic. It's like, haha, we know who you are. We know the people who are ruining our lives, and it's finance capital. And there's a shit ton of Marxist Leninists running around in France trying to organize and. Eh. At least there's something happening. <laughs> no, we should definitely be taking lessons from the French again. Well, my friends, this has been Last Minute Politics. I'm Pepper. I've been joined by Lorcan today. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, I don't know. What do you What do you think? Any closing thoughts? I've had a couple of drinks. I'm feeling feeling a little feeling feel a little French myself. I'm going to go to my local finance capital headquarters and uh do nothing i am a very polite person i will sign the guest book uh government agents please do not send anyone to my house (laughs) i don't know if that's going to discourage them (laughs) here's hoping they'll get me on some petty shit (laughs) they'll be like ah your taxes (laughs) they'll probably get me on promoting terrorism or something i don't know yeah your laws are even more stupid i i feel like they could already get me on like ah you've anti-american blah blah oh god all right from from everybody meaning me at at last minute politics thank you very much for listening say the word goodbye for a long time now Bye. bye